Uh, hello, everybody. Welcome to another one of our financial well-being podcasts. My name's David Lloyd, uh, actor, writer, broadcaster. I'm here with my very good friend, Chris Budd. Chris, tell us about yourself in one sentence. Good morning. I had scotch broth for breakfast. Scotch broth for breakfast? Scotch what, have you got all Japanese breakfast. on us or something? <laughs> scotch broth? That's Scottish. Yeah, I know, but they Japanese. have soup and stuff, oh, don't yeah, okay. they? Um, I was listening to Michelle McGuire's podcast the other day, and I made a batch of soup yesterday... That combined with the nutritionist at Gloucestershire Cricket Club, who I heard give a talk and say the perfect balanced meal should be a variety of things, and why not have your evening meal for breakfast? So I combined those two theories, and I had Scotch broth for breakfast. Fantastic. I had Weetabix, a little bit of muesli, a chopped nectar in, and some grapes and some blueberries. Blimey. With hemp milk. Oh, very middle class. <laughs> very, very. Right. Anyway, enough of that. Enough of our eating habits. What's on today's podcast, Chris? Well, today we're going to have the first part of an interview I did with Ian Modmore. So this is our first modcast. Thank you very much. Ian Modmore is a stand-up comedian uh, under Mod, and he lives in France. Uh, he's particularly relevant to our podcast because of this life decision to live in France and to be a stand-up comedian. He's a really nice chap, and I had a really good chat with him. We're going to listen to one part of it today, and then uh, in a few podcasts' time, there's a bit of the chat which was especially relevant to Mod's and his mod life. So that's going to be our modcast, uh, and that will be uh, in a few podcast time. Excellent. Look forward to listening to that. But before we do, as ever, we always encourage people to send in uh, their own thoughts on the stuff that we're uh, waffling on about in these podcasts. So we've had a lovely comment in it forward to us from at Adam Downs from his friend Tom Williams, to whom he had recommended the podcast. And Tom said, it's the little things like working out your spending and setting yourself a goal with what you want to achieve. Before listening, I'd have probably said, I just want to be rich. But in reality, it makes you think, well, why do I want to be rich? For example, the idea of saving for experiences and memories is key to why it's good to save. Isn't that a lovely, lovely thing? Uh, Adam is a financial advisor himself, and he forwarded that to his friend, and that was Tom's comment after listening to the podcast. So I was dead chuffed when we got that feedback. We love that kind of thing. Um, I also spotted a really good quote from the great comedian and actor George Carlin. Your era, George Carlin, I imagine, wasn't he? A stand-up comedian from America? Never heard of him. <laughs> uh, at cat underscore McTaggart, uh, who's a solicitor in, uh, I think, Cardiff, uh, she tweeted um, George's line as follows. Trying to be happy accumulating possessions is like trying to satisfy hunger by taping sandwiches all over your body. <laughs> oh, that's brilliant. Taping sandwiches? No, I'd rather just eat them, surely. <laughs> right then, tell us more about this um, interview that we're about to listen to. OK, Ian Moore is a stand-up comedian. He lives in France, um, uh, but works in England. He actually describes himself on his website and Twitter bio as a comedian, author and chutney maker. We do cover the chutney at some point in these couple of podcasts. I thought he'd be an interesting person to talk to about financial well-being because he's made several decisions involving money and happiness. He's also written a couple of books of his experiences, a la mod and modnifique, with a high mod element to these. I uh, highly recommend them. They're very funny. Ian was in his house in France. We had a chat over Skype, and I started off by asking him about the financial impact of his move to France. What conclusions about your happiness have you come to? Do you know what? It's funny because I went through a period where when I first started earning what I'd call good money rather than sort of being more hand to mouth. That was when I felt the worst about money because it was kind of, well, I have to, I have to keep this going now. Suddenly the, there was more pressure on it then. And, and I wasn't happy at all, but I've kind of come through that bit. 
So it's uh, it's been quite odd. I was thinking back to when we first moved here. The, the money we had coming in was just about covering everything. And yet I never felt the kind of pressure that I did, say, a year ago. But you had two decisions there, didn't you? Because you had the decision to move to France, but also the decision, I presume, to carry on working as a comedian. Because you could have got a job at a factory in France or something, couldn't you? Well, I could have done, but I mean, the re- I wanted to move here. My wife, you know, we'd always kind of planned to retire here. But it was me who pushed for us to come a lot earlier. And, and I did so by basically saying, look, I can do the travel. It's not it's not a problem. I can do this. All right, the travel's going to cost a lot more than what, what I would be spending at home in England traveling. But we wouldn't have a mortgage or not a crazy mortgage like we had in the UK. And and so my travel was tax deductible, whereas my mortgage wouldn't have been. So it, it seemed at the time, it seemed a no brainer because we could do it. Does it still feel like a no-brainer? It does, because because I, when I come home, and I say that, I say this a lot to people who ask me about the travel and about living in France, but it does feel like I'm going on holiday every time I come home, and that, that can be twice a week, mm-hmm. which is not a bad feeling to have. No, know? no, absolutely, absolutely. One of the things that we like to kind of think about is you know, money and happiness and, and choices that we've made, and let's look at the comedian side first you made a choice to be a comedian i mean i imagine that that was a do you know what i kind of didn't i I kind of didn't make that i mean obviously you go further down the road and you go well yeah i have to start taking this more seriously the way it started was i went to a show in london and i I came out of that and and i just said to my friend i said you know that was all right but no more than that it was just i reckon i'm gonna do better and, and, you know, a typical boasty thing to say. And then she rang me up about a week later and said, all right, well, do you know what? You put your money where your mouth is. I've booked you an open spot. You've got a month to write. So, uh, you <laughs> Did go, you say thank you? Or? <laughs> I, well, I kind of, yeah, I, I guess maybe subconsciously I was pushing for it. But then I did the first gig and it went it went so stunningly well. I can't remember it because I was so scared, but it just felt like it went well. And naturally i then thought i knew it all but you presumably in the early days you didn't immediately start earning good money so there was a decision to carry on at that at one point no and and this is what i think a lot of people who start comedy now struggle with is that you just don't walk into gigs and immediately start making money you go through an apprenticeship where you earn no money i would when i first started we were living in london and i would drive up to manchester from london to do five minutes on stage for no money and then drive back again and that's it's a commitment if you if you want if you think that you've got the potential to do it you have to commit to it yeah definitely very much so so what sort of sacrifices were you making in those days (sighs) well it wasn't really me making the sacrifices my my wife was earning good money as a recruitment consultant and when we moved out of London in 97, I'd been going about a year and was very raw, very new. I was just temping at the time because I, I wanted to work in film and TV. And I was doing some corporate script writing for for about 18 months. And that wasn't working out and I didn't really enjoy it. And so I was just temping and just trying to get a job in television. And nobody would give me a job in television. I just wanted to make tea and work my way up. And nobody would give me a chance. So when we moved out of London in 97, we got married and Natalie, my wife, said, you've got two years to do this and for it to, to at least look like it's going to make a living. And if and if it doesn't, then you have to, you know, get a proper job. But, for, you know, fortunately, it worked out pretty quickly. Did you find that helpful, that deadline? 
Oh yeah, because I because otherwise I could just drift, and it, I, I'm, I work very well to deadlines. You know, obviously I do writing and, and columns and books and stuff, and and I work better if I have a, an end in sight. If I if there is no end, then I'm I'm liable just to drift. I'm just reminded of a story which I'm not sure how relevant this is, but you tell me. Uh, my guitarist friend who was telling me that one of his mates was a drummer, and he. Um, went to Russia on a gig for a Russian oligarch's birthday party with, I won't mention the name, but a extremely internationally well-known female singer. And he was part of her band. She got paid a million pounds for that gig. He got 500 quid. Yeah. Well, you know, I mean, that's that's the way it goes. I mean, and each gig that I do, every single one's different. Like, I'm going back to the UK at the weekend. And on Thursday, I've got a corporate gig, which is very well paid. Um, and lovely and exactly what I like because I, I'm a lot of comics don't like corporate gigs either they think they're they're artists and shouldn't be selling themselves with with, with grubby money uh, or they just talk themselves out of it because they automatically think they're going to struggle and they're just like ordinary gigs if you play it properly but they are extremely well paid and I like that I like getting paid for what I think are my skills and yet the next night I can go and do a 70 quid room above a pub gig, you know. That's your which, choice. Yeah. Oh, it's my choice. It's my choice. Yeah. But I'm doing fewer and fewer of those by choice as well. Well, that's a nice position to be in. That means you're, you're good yeah. at what you do, clearly, isn't it? And as yeah. you say, it's nice to be paid well when you've worked hard to get a good skill set. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, I, I do a lot of corporate work and a lot of award ceremonies and... And I keep getting booked back and my reputation has grown within corporate circles. So I get calls from companies, corporate bookers who I've never met or worked for, but who have heard of me. It, that has made a huge difference to to our life here. And that has happened in the last sort of four, four years. And that was and that, and when I said earlier that, that I felt the pressure, that's when I first started feeling the pressure when I started earning that that kind of money for gigs. So one of the one of the principles in the book that kind of goes through the book and all the financial well-being stuff we're doing is know thyself. Yeah. You know, financial planning is very simple. You just work out what you want out of life and spend your money on that. It's yes. Not, not complicated, yeah. is it, really? <laughs> in theory, that's... Uh, yeah. Well, it depends what you want and whether you have got the money to spend on that. It's, but you've made a choice that... Uh, you've almost made a choice to enjoy your corporate gigs, haven't you? Very much so. Very much so. I I, I love them because I know... One, I'm good at it, and two, I know that each one is a building block to me being secure here. When I say me, I mean the family, because yeah. that's that's the pressure. And I don't know if your guitarist mates in the same boat. I think anybody who's freelance tends to be in the same boat. Is that you are constantly worried about the future? You know, I'm I'm not saying I'm rolling around and bathing in cash at the moment, but I we're comfortable. But will that be the same next year? And that's always the worry. You know, when you buy a new diary and you've got it and you look at the blank page and you, and you just, I just fill it, just absolutely fill it. And then as it gets closer to a lot of those gigs, you look at them and you go, oh, my God, I don't want to go there. <laughs> and you end up taking them out. <laughs> I, I can so relate to that. As somebody who's set up his own business back in 1998 you know uh, the blank diary is absolutely terrifying oh it is yes yeah i've got to start making the choice where where i have to look at my diary when it's blank and just sit there and just go don't worry these ones will come in deep breath and and, and take that and take that leap because i'm otherwise i'm just letting people down by, by putting things in the book and then going do you know what 
I'm not well. <laughs> and it's nice that you get to a state there's, there's an expression that i heard many years ago um from somebody talking about setting up your own business which was leap and the net will appear i think yeah. that's such a great phrase and it's easy to say once you've done it <laughs> yeah it's like it's like stage diving i guess backwards isn't it the fear that somebody's going to move away and they'll land on the floor it is. I've never been terribly brave. It's a, a lot of people always say to us when you know when we say oh, we've moved out here and we've we've moved lock, stock and barrel. We haven't got a place in the UK. They go, oh, well, that's brave. And you go, well, you know what? <laughs> if we'd thought it was brave, we probably wouldn't have done it. We'd have thought about it more. But it just felt right. Sorry, let me just get this straight. You're a stand-up comedian who's moved his family to France and writes books. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I'd say no. there's some some bravery involved in that lot. Crikey. <laughs> I don't know. Again, you, I don't see it as that. It's like when people say, "Oh, well, how can you go on stage and do that?" You just—I don't know. It's just it's, some things are second nature. You know? So let's 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 move on to France then, and and uh, your life in France. It's obviously a huge decision, but you've 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 made it work, and you're now applying for French citizenship. Yeah, that's that's purely a Brexit thing. I'm concerned that my family should all have the same nationality and we we'll, we've all got british passports but that's going to become problematic over here so natalie and the boys are all french and they have french passports it just makes sense for us all to you know play for the same team as it were what are the french like with money is there any difference there's a massive difference there's a difference in very not everybody has a credit card which seems sort of inconceivable from a country where people have four or five and juggling between the, the two people don't take loans people don't buy on credit so much here they buy what with what they've got and this is a very very poor area of france so it's it's a it's a different mentality to money you don't spend what you haven't got and banks themselves are a different breed over here they shut on a monday they're not open on a saturday afternoon obviously they're not open on a sunday if there's an issue, they have to ring Paris and sort something out in Paris for it to then filter back here in about 10 days time, presumably by a carrier pigeon. I've no idea. It's just it's just a much slower process. We I think you tweeted that uh, I go on holiday quite often, not that far from you. And it always tickles me that in the middle of August, the height of the tourist season, they shut all their restaurants and go on holiday. <laughs> I know. It, it just baffles me. It, what's that saying? They don't live to work; they work to live. And there's there's that, and you can't interfere with holidays, no matter what you do. I mean, yeah, the hotels. There was a, one, we only got two hotels in town. One of them shut for August. <laughs> Brilliant! It's astonishing. And the cinema used to shut all the school holidays. The cinema was because the bloke who owned it. Not interested in money at all, but he hated kids so much that he would make sure that no no kid could see a film during the holidays. The, the thing about France, like I say, money isn't the priority. The priority seems to be, not the cinema bloke, it seems to be family. That's the priority. Family and meals. Which is, I, I really like that attitude. It comes back to that know thyself, what you want to spend your money on, doesn't it? Yeah. What makes yeah. you happy? I think I'd be a very different person if I was still in England. I, I was I was very unhappy. We lived in Crawley, um, and then we moved in Crawley. We needed a bigger place, and so the mortgage got big, and we were in this kind of box on a new estate. And and the new estate I could see was just unsustainable, completely unsustainable, because it's one of these new estates built as family homes, but with very little garden, 
one small garage that can never get a car in. There's nothing, and yeah, everybody's got three kids, and those three kids will grow up and not be able to leave home because the area is so expensive. So they'll have cars and they'll all live there, and it will just grind to a halt. The whole thing would just grind to, a halt. and it just depressed me so much. Which is why we moved out here, you know, we, to get what we could never afford in the UK. Not without winning the lottery or something. It would be, it'd be a ridiculous, what we have here for the price of what was. Well, it would have been the price of a small two-bedroom flat, maybe, in Crawley. And we've got our dream home. We actually had one of those conversations. You know, I don't know if you ever have, what would you do? if you, I think it was, we're on holiday and the Euro millions, 75 million euros. I mean, it's something absurd like that. And we were walking back from the supermarket, and my wife and I, and we were just... We said, what would you do with 75 million euros? I mean, kind of, you know, charity, pay off families' mortgages and stuff like that. But we both came to the conclusion that we wouldn't move. We have the house that we would always want in, in the area that we'd always want with what we want around us. You know? And that, that's quite a, a nice realisation. So that's a great reason for moving, but I'm interested in the in the culture that you've moved to as well, the culture clash. That's been a massively positive thing for you. Which was that unexpected? It's yeah, I think it was. I think I thought it would be harder for me to sort of settle in, but it's it hasn't been hard at all. And the the difference in the culture has been frankly it's been a it's helped me in my job i mean it's it, it forms most of what i say on stage i've written two books about it it's it's been, it's been a career move career as, well as, as well as a house move which i didn't expect that to happen i didn't because i always said before we moved there there's no way i'm going to sit down and write a year in provence type book the market is saturated don't do it leave it alone it took me about 10 years before i actually started doing it but i did it in the end what about the chutney where is that is that just a hobby it is just a hobby. It is my happy place. Although we've had a really bad year. There's no fruit around here at all. But it is it's just a hook. And it's one of those things that you put on your website and people go, he makes chutney. Like I, had, I, was, I was doing a corporate last week and the, the guy who was the hotel manager said, have you got a business card? Because um, we quite often get asked to supply the comedians for, for a charity night or whatever. So I gave him a business card and he started walking away. And he came back and he said, you make chutney. And it just becomes a hook. He will now remember, you know. But I do love it. And I got there's um, I got asked to do sixty jars of chutney for a hamper for a corporate company, and it was easily the most nerve wracking gig I've ever done. It was it was terrifying, but you, I did it because you know this is a big corporate company. Give me a lot of work. Do you have a chutney section in your act? I do now. Yeah. Actually, just as, just as right, you know, you can't travel with Chutney. There's, the international movement of Chutney is a very restricted area, so I can't actually take much to gigs. But the plan was, at one point, the plan was that while all these other comics were selling their DVDs and CDs at the end of the show, that I would just set up a little table at the back with a gingham tablecloth and just try and punt out Chutney. And when I say that, you know, when I, when I go on stage and I say, I make Chutney, it, again, it's very different. It's a very different thing. Nobody else on the circuit is going halfway through their set, do you want to buy some chutney? Right. After talking about their goats and, you know, other things. So it's, again, it's all part of the thing about being different. Well, fascinating stuff. Uh, it sounds like you had a really good chat. He was a really nice guy and he's obviously had a 
been through a real journey with going to his move to France and taking his family there. Um, and he's a thoughtful chap. He's got a lot of things to say about, about this stuff. One of the things that I quite enjoyed listening to, and I want to ask you this question, David, as, a, as an actor and a writer, uh, some of the dodgy jobs you do early on in your career. Have you had one or two things? Never mind early on in my career. I'm still doing them like this one. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's true. Actually, that really did ring a bell with me. The few things there struck a chord. Um, you probably don't know this, but I actually uh, appeared once at the Comedy Store in London back in 1982, I think it was. Do you think you were the gig he saw that made him think, I can do this better? <laughs> <laughs> Could well have been. No, I had a kind of... Similar experience. I was, I think we've re referred to it in previous podcasts. I, I was at university with Ben Elton. Now, Ben at that point had been appearing at the comic strip in London, but the comedy store was just starting off and he was invited on the back of that to go along and do a gig, a paid gig. I don't think he was paid very much, but he went along to do a gig. And I went, I was staying with him in London at the time. So I said, oh, I'll come along, keep you company. So they had the audience slot at the end. And so I got up and I just I just told a joke. It was a, an old shaggy dog story that I used to tell. Uh, and it went down really, really well. And I came away thinking, oh, do you know what? I might give this a go. So I went back the next week in the audience spot. And this time I'd worked up my own material absolutely bombed, never went back again. <laughs> decided decided that I would take the comfort from being on stage with the other people rather than... So full respect to Ian for uh, sticking at it in those early years and obviously going on to be a very successful comedian. Brilliant. I can't even imagine what it's like to be standing up there telling a joke and having absolute silence. Uh, it's horrible. It is the worst. And also the other thing about the comedy store at that time, it was a really, really like a frontier town. You know, it's when they had the gong. Tony Allen was the compare. You used to come on and hit the gong if you were, you used to get gonged off if you weren't any good. It's full of drunk people and late at night on a Saturday night, you know, the heckling would be pretty merciless. I wasn't heckled, actually. I was just treated with indifference, which is in some ways <laughs> even worse. worse. <laughs> so uh, anyway, I, I digress. The, the other thing as well, though, that struck home to me, coming back to Money Matters, he talks about finally starting to earn money and similar thing happened to me and then that pressure that comes with that you get your first decent paycheck you know in my case it was uh, I was in a very successful tv series and I suddenly started earning like really good money money to buy things and and have actually a bit of a financial cushion but once you get used to that level of income when you've perhaps been struggling for a while which I did in my early career the pressure that's then on you to carry on bringing that money in is massive I think everybody in a career feels an element of that. You get to a certain degree of success and um, people are watching you now, aren't they? Mm. You know, you've become real. You've, you've now got to back up that potential by making it actual. Yes, very true, very true. And, and also the blank diary thing as well, which that. you both talked about. I mean, I, even now I'm still freelance. And now when I look ahead and I've got nothing in my diary, I don't think, oh, that's good, I don't have much to do. I'm thinking... Oh, God, I'm not earning any money. You'll always have this podcast, David. You've got that to fall back on. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I also, like, we, we've, you and I have talked before about, uh, we both write um, uh, fiction. I mean, obviously, you, you do it professionally, and I, I do it as an amateur. But we've all, uh, that also, I think, informs our conversations about writing for money. And I was really interested by what Ian said about the corporate gigs, that he really likes them because they pay well. And because they pay well, it is then a way of somebody saying, we acknowledge that you're good at what you do. You know, now I write 
because I enjoy writing. You, we've had this conversation before, you write very much from a commercial head, don't you? Yeah, I write to earn money, and I'm fully 100% with Ian on that one. You know, it's my job. I enjoy doing it, and I think I'm good at it, but I want to earn money from doing it. Um, when I started off, I didn't so often. But now, if I'm going to sit down and write something, I want to be reasonably confident that somebody's going to give me some money to do it. And anybody that poo-poos the notion of a corporate gig because it's in some way selling out, well, I think that's absolute nonsense. Go out and earn as much money as you can and then do what Ian has done, is create a great life for yourself, living in your dream home. And the fact that he then said, even if I won the lottery, I wouldn't move anywhere, I think that's absolutely fantastic. Lovely position to be in. And he's worked very hard to get there. Yeah, and that's the other thing as well. Uh, I think there's a, a misconception sometimes that people who work in the creative world, well, you just stand up, you tell a few jokes on stage, and it's easy, isn't it? And you don't have to work. You have to work really, really hard, and Ian's obviously worked really, really hard. You know, going back to Ben, uh, nobody works harder than him, and he's continued to work hard throughout his career. He's had an up-and-down career, but he will never, ever, ever fall short in terms of his work ethic. And all of the successful people I know have exactly that, whether they're working in the creative industries, whether they're working in business or the corporate world or the financial world, the people that are successful are the ones that are prepared to work really, really hard to get there. To uh, quote the great Neil Innes, every time he opens a gig, uh, he uses the line, I've suffered for my art, now it's your turn. Yes, one of the great lines. <laughs> I love that one. Great, so that was uh, a really good chat with Ian. He's a really nice guy. Uh, his books are available on Amazon. Uh, on Twitter, he is at Ian Mod Moore with an E on the end. I follow him and he's very good value. His website is ianmore.info and you can get his books there. He's also writing a, a blog about Brexit at the moment. Pathos, I think, is the word I would use. He's uh, it's funny, but it's also at times quite uh, emotional. Um, he's, he writes extremely well. I think he's also writing a book on fiction as well. So uh, he's a good chap. Yeah, and that really came across in your interview, which I thought was fascinating. So I think we've waffled on enough for today. Thanks very much for listening. As ever, we'll be back very soon with another Financial Wellbeing podcast. And don't forget to listen out to part two of this interview, which will be coming up in a few weeks' time. If you want to be notified of upcoming podcasts, make sure you click the subscribe button. For more information on the topics discussed in today's podcast and to purchase a copy of the Financial Wellbeing book, please visit www.financialwell-being.co.uk. We'd love to hear your thoughts and ideas on financial well-being. You can send us an email at contact at financialwell-being.co.uk. You can follow us on Twitter at FinWellBeing. Chris is Ovation Chris, and David is at David underscore Backwell. This has been an Ovation Finance production. Thanks for listening to the Financial Wellbeing Podcast. More interesting than you might think. If you drive a car, I'll tax the street. If you try to sit, I'll tax your seat. If you get too cold, I'll tax the heat. If you take a walk, I'll tax your feet.